Well, Romans chapter 7 in your Bibles tonight. Romans chapter 7, we'll get there in a moment. I want to thank you for your kindness last night uh, with the birthday celebration and all who organized that and uh, uh, the, just the, the specialness of it. It really blessed my heart. I'm glad I was at this church <laughs> uh, during uh, uh, that birthday and appreciate uh, just your kindness, the cards and all that was a part of that. And uh, yes, I did turn 60. Now you're supposed to gasp. <laughs> and say, say it isn't true. <laughs> uh, someone did ask if I dyed my hair. No, my hair is not dyed. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, one good thing about getting old is Pastor Scott said he liked to read the old writers. So uh, <laughs> not quite what he meant. But at any rate, thank you for your kindnesses in that regard. Let me mention a couple of things at the table back there. Uh, uh, my wife uh, has several recordings uh, there is one called, What a Savior, What a Friend. Back in our earliest meetings, uh, this may have had a red cover, uh, but the same title, What a Savior, What a Friend. This is just piano, solo piano, uh, well-known hymns and gospel songs that Marilyn has arranged and, of course, is playing. It was out of print for quite a while. We brought it back into print. And uh, so uh, songs like, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus, and many others of that nature are on this recording. And then uh, there's two recordings that are vocal uh, that I will mention. One is entitled The Presence of the Lord. And these are all revival prayers. They're all heart cries. In other words, all of the words are in the form of a prayer like, oh, for a closer walk with God. Breathe on me, breath of God. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. And it starts with songs that uh, are really dealing with personal revival, then it moves on into corporate revival. Uh, this is more of a meditative sound, piano cello, piano flute, as Mary Lynn is singing. And then there is the recording called Christ Lives in Me. Again, this is vocal solo, and uh, Mary Lynn is singing, but this is with full orchestration. It's beautifully done. A lot of revival truth, like the title song, the very essence of life again is the life of Jesus in us being lived through us. And obviously, Galatians 2.20, Christ Lives in Me. There's a song called uh, I Trust Him. She sang it the other night. I mentioned a word about that. There's a song called Only Thee, written by Fanny Crosby, but one that's not well known. My wife found it in an old hymnal and uh, put it to a, a tune and puts the focus. We've said a lot about focus. Focus on Jesus and uh, just a beautiful song. Some of the songs that my wife and I have written are on this recording, like I Love You, Lord, uh, The Wind of the Spirit, Knowing Christ, Help Me Win the Lost, and so on. So these recordings are available uh, individually or any three for significant savings. Uh, there's a couple other recordings that are available on our website for download. Uh, the uh, recording to the praise of his glory that Mac Lynch did with the Wilds that Mary Lynn was singing on uh, is there. And another piano recording is there that's at gentlepraise.com. So that's not Revival Focus, that's gentlepraise.com. If you're interested in those other recordings. Well, Romans chapter 7, uh, tying into some of the truth that we started uh, uh, looking at on Sunday night in that opening message at, uh, in Romans 5. Now, as I mentioned, the early part of Romans uh, deals with salvation. It deals with justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. I love the song the choir sang tonight about grace. Ah, yes, that undeserved favor of God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that supernatural enablement through the Spirit. And of course, that starts in salvation. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus paid it all. When we put our faith in him, then God supernaturally and miraculously saves us. Our sins are covered by the blood, and we are on our way to heaven because the uh, Spirit of Jesus takes that eternal life of Jesus and brings it right into us. What an amazing truth. Then, Romans... 
uh, goes beyond that truth of getting saved and justified to sanctification or growing or becoming holy by grace through faith. That's what we're looking at here in Romans 6, 7, and 8. We saw the importance of a right focus on uh, Sunday night, and the passage that we're going to look at tonight is what gives us the biblical underpinnings for what we were looking at and some of that diagnosis the other night. And then on Monday night, we begin to open up Romans 6. What a passage. Death, life, freedom. That we are saints. Uh, that when we put our faith in Jesus, our spirit, that old man was severed from that old sin master, raised with Christ the new man, and that's where the Holy Spirit moved in so that we have been freed to live victoriously. That is, we have been freed to access the victorious life of Jesus Christ himself. What an amazing thing because he is the victory. We talked about personalizing that so that we make right choices of faith. And then last night, we saw the text take us into two illustrations. And there was that uh, Hoosier leader, who, uh, the master-slave uh, dealing with the matter of leadership, and then the husband-wife illustration dealing with the matter of power source to bear fruit unto God. And we uh, then uh, came to uh, verses 5 and 6 in uh, Romans chapter 7, which is really a pivotal point in this whole section of Scripture. Now, we noted last night that the Holy Spirit is first introduced in this section of chapters in Romans 7, verse 6. However, as we're going to see tonight, he's not mentioned again until you get to Romans 8. To the rest of Romans 7, there is a silence concerning the Holy Spirit. Very significant. We noted last night at the end of verse 6, it says, it talks about... Uh, uh, that we should serve, it actually delineates two approaches about uh, this victory that's in Jesus. There's that new way of the power of the Spirit uh, versus that old way of the lack of power of the letter of the law. And then verse 7, as we're going to see, uh, down to the end of the chapter in verse 25, unfolds that law approach, that letter of the law, the lack of power approach that leads out the Holy Spirit and the futility that that self-dependence brings and then tomorrow night, Romans 8, will unfold that life approach and the freedom of Holy Spirit dependence. So tonight, we're on page 21. If you have your workbook, we're dealing with the wrong approach, <laughs> that law approach uh, that leads to futility. It leads to frustration because it's self-reliant. And uh, this is where many people find themselves, and it frustrates them. And I'll say more about that as we get into the message tonight. Let's pray. Will you join me? Will you ask the Holy Spirit to speak directly to you, to just open your eyes so that you see the truth that's connected to the words. So that we get lost in the detail, but we see the truth that that detail is bringing out. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to do that for us tonight. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. Thank you for every person that you've brought to this service tonight, everyone that's listening in live stream, a spirit of the living God. Would you open our eyes tonight to see the truth as it is in Jesus. That these words are pointing up. Lord, tonight for that one that longs to experience Jesus, knows right words, but somehow the power is evading them. 
would you give them understanding as to what must be adjusted for the simple access of faith to experience Jesus. Lord, do in every heart what only you can do. That one that needs to come to know you as Savior tonight, may you do that work. But others, Lord, who are frustrated, as this chapter describes, wondering what's wrong, would you give them the clarity that they need? And so, Lord, I plead the victory of Jesus through the shed blood. Would you protect us from Satan's attack tonight, who certainly doesn't want us to get this. And so, Lord Jesus, in your name, I claim our position in you and exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder tonight and interfere. And Lord, I trust you that that not be allowed. Lord, would you breathe on us. And as has been prayed, would you grant us the breath of Christ tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was born in 1962. You may have figured that out if you figured out the uh, 60 and you're a math person. Uh, but in 1960s, the United States of America was in a great revolution. Uh, the hippie movement was taking place. And so by the end of the 60s, when I was a little boy, uh, all of this was happening and the sexual revolution and uh, uh, the hippies and you began to hear preachers dealing with all of this stuff. And, and that's just, you know, that's my, some of my earliest remembers of, of preaching <laughs> I was uh, dealing with some of the problems of the hippie movement and all of that. But, you know, a lot of these young people were, were seeking, maybe seeking in the wrong place, but when there's unrest like that, and uh, even some of the uh, riots that took place, did you know in 1972 there were a lot more riots than there were in 2020? There were a lot more. So we've had these times of unrest before in our country. Well, it was a time period of unrest. And you know, God always is willing to save the savable and revive the revivable. And the breath of God began to be felt across the United States of America. And in the early 1970s, we began to hear of a movement, a movement of the Lord. It was called the Jesus Movement. Now, some in some quarters of Christianity thought, well, that can't be good because they don't look like us. <laughs> uh, well, some of them uh, maybe don't look like independent Baptists, but I'm going to tell you, when teenagers were leaving marijuana parties to go to Bible studies, you cannot chalk it up to the devil. It all passes the test of 1 John 4. God was on the move. And yes, you had uh, the blessing of God in a, in a lot of different places. You had Wesleyan uh, a College called Asbury, 1970, where the Spirit of God came down on a chapel service, and that service continued without ceasing for over 180 hours. And obviously kids would have to go back to their room and get some sleep and get some food, and then they'd come right back. I mean, it was jammed. And then the cameras, it was even on the news. And you could see in that auditorium, God on the move, 1970. These young people coming clean with God, dealing with sin. And uh, God was breathing uh, uh, over there on the West Coast. And the Calvary Chapel, it was, just, it was nothing, and it exploded. And they were baptizing 200 people out of shot in the Pacific Ocean. And another group that was blessed at this time period was what we call independent Baptist. Isn't it interesting? God was blessing a lot of places. Anybody who was willing to be blessed got, got blessed. And so uh, independent Baptist by, you know, in uh, you know, 1965, there were very few. You look at the history of it all. Uh, they had a minuscule beginning and uh, so forth. But, oh, man, when that breath of God was in the land. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, Independent Baptists, along with many others, were greatly blessed. And, and by 1975, 
the largest church in many states was an independent Baptist church. It's a fact of history. God was gracious to us, and he was blessing those that were looking to him. But another thing was happening in the 1960s and early 70s, known as the charismatic renewal. Now, part of it was good. The gospel got to a lot of places that it had never gotten to before through that. And there's some dear people involved in that. But in it all, you know, Satan tries to muddy the waters. Whenever there's a real movement, he tries to muddy it with a counterfeit movement. And so you had some excesses that took place. And the excesses were, they were weird. Weird things done in the name of the Holy Spirit. And so you hear uh, people call it wildfire and strange fire. And, and uh, uh, it, uh, it muddied the waters. Uh, because when you, when you have a counterfeit stream and a real stream, you know, sometimes there's hard to discern what's what. Uh, the counterfeit stream, the negative stream, never uh, negates the positive stream. The positive stream that's from the Lord does not condone the negative stream. But there were some excesses. But again, you can't brand everybody in that movement as excessive by any means, but there was definitely some excesses that were dangerous because it discredits the truth. And so independent Baptists being uh, of a nature in their... Uh, framework of thinking. Uh, uh, we're very concerned about sound doctrine. That's a good thing. And so they rejected these excesses that were done in the name of the Spirit, but unwittingly, many, especially those whose theology was not yet set, especially that younger generation, uh, they overreacted, and as they rejected the excesses that were done in the name of the Spirit, they unwittingly rejected the Spirit. Now, nobody would have said it that way, but there was a fear because we don't want to be wildfire. We don't want to be strange fire. We don't want to be weird. And so uh, uh, all of a sudden, the third person of the Godhead got ignored, you know, tacitly mentioned from time to time, uh, but basically ignored. And when that happened, we lost our leader. And in the vacuum of that, we developed man leaders, big kings couple emperors, <laughs> and then little kings. And over time, some of that even spread into how dads ran their homes. And uh, moving from true leadership, which is God-ordained, to force and dictatorship, which is lordship, which God condemns. And so we were left without the Holy Spirit. And the last couple of decades it has become apparent that we are in desperate need of a movement of the Holy Spirit once again in our churches. Now, Romans chapter 7, the portion of the text we're about to look at, is what happens when you leave out the Holy Spirit. It is what happens when you leave out the Holy Spirit. And... It is going to show us this, this error that sometimes occurs. And it's important for us to get this and understand what's happening. You see, Romans 6, all of this amazing provision, you've been severed from the sin master. Your spirit has been regenerated with divine life and nature. The Holy Spirit of God has moved in, uh, bringing the very life of Christ from the throne right into your being. What an amazing thing. That is, uh, uh, that's Christianity. The Christian life is the Christian life himself. Jesus moving into you. Salvation, not just getting us to heaven, but getting Jesus into us. 
and all of that amazing provision. And then we have Romans 7, and there's all this frustration and defeat, and the things you want to do, you don't. The things you don't want to do, you do. If we're going to see, and it's like, wow. Why wasn't that Romans 6? I don't know if you've thought about this, but I've often wondered, why wasn't Romans 7, Romans 6, and Romans 6, Romans 7? Why didn't it start with all this defeat and then go to this amazing provision and then go into the experience of it in Romans 8? But that's not how it's laid out. The divine author knows man well because what happens is in our Christian experience, you know, often as we get saved, uh, uh, we, we get back to, you know, self-dependence to try to live right, and that's not working out too well. And then we hear about some Romans 6 kind of provision. We hear that there is a power available that's beyond human power. And boy, that awakening to the power of the Holy Spirit excites us, which is a good thing. But often what happens is when we become aware of the power of the Spirit, we get excited about that power for the wrong goal. And that's what happens here in Romans 7. We get derailed by focusing on the law or our version, depending on what section of churches we're from, our version of law living, uh, some more of a holiness nature, some others more of a soul winning uh, uh, service nature. But we get derailed by focusing on that outcome as the goal instead of Jesus. But the law is not a person and has no power to enable us to obey it. And the default of this vacuum of power goes to our own flesh. And that's when we find that the law kills and the flesh fails. John Hunter, uh, he is with the Lord now. He was from Great Britain. He put it this way. You see it in your notes under that uh, opening paragraph. Many Christians are struggling to make the flesh perform the works of the Spirit. This is impossible. And he's exactly right. Friend, I want to ask you tonight, have you discovered the impossibility of self-reliance through the law approach? Now, what is it that we really need to discover? I want us to see as the text unfolds this, two major discoveries. First of all, it is that the law kills. That is the law without the spirit. This is what we see in Romans 7, verse 7, down to verse 13. Now, let me hasten to clarify here. We're going to read in a moment that the text says the law is holy and just and good. We are not denigrating the law. The problem here is when it's without the spirit because of a wrong focus. The psalmist said, oh, how love I thy law. You see, the psalmist loved the Lord, the person, and therefore loved the law. But if you love the law without loving the Lord, you are in love with rituals. And you become a religionist instead of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. The key is the relationship and therefore the focus of being in love with Jesus. That's why Vance Havner used to say that revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again. So let's look at the explanation of the text here uh, to see this idea of that the, the law without the Spirit uh, kills. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here for the rest of this chapter. We're going to see in verse 7 that the law details sins. It says in verse 7, uh, uh, what shall we say then? Is the law sin or sinful? 
God forbid, that's a wrong conclusion. Absolutely not. On the contrary, no, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, for example, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Now, the citation of thou shalt not covet obviously comes from the Ten Commandments. That lets us know that this usage of the law at this part in the context is dealing with the Mosaic law. Later on, we'll see a couple other usages of the word law, but it's the Mosaic law at this point because of the exact phrase, thou shalt not covet. You see, the law does not remove sin. The law reveals sin. And so he's saying, hey, the law's not bad. God uses it. He said, I would not have known lust or evil desire except the, Lord, uh, the, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And so the law details sins, like thou shalt not commit adultery, or thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not uh, 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 kill, in other words, the sense of murder. So the law details, it reveals sin. Now, what happens is, is people who don't know the Lord think that the law can get them to heaven. That if they can keep that law, they'll make it. How many people have I asked, hey, uh, you know, do you... If you died right now or 10 years from now, are you sure you'd go to heaven? Or some quest, such question is, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what are you depending on? Well, you know, I keep the Ten Commandments. <laughs> That's amazing that people could actually even say that. <laughs> but uh, uh, some do. Or I try to. And so on. But you know, the standard for heaven is perfection. The law doesn't make you perfect. It shows you you aren't. <laughs> See, it doesn't remove sin. It reveals sin. It doesn't empower you to obey. It shows you that on your own power, you don't obey. And so the standard for heaven is God. It's absolute perfection. And that's why we need Jesus, because we fall short of the glory of God. And so those who try to attain heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, they miss out on heaven. And those Christians who have trusted Jesus for heaven, they got that right, but they try to attain heaven on earth, in other words, living right, uh, what we would call victory, uh, by keeping the same Ten Commandments, they're back to the same error. They're back to self-dependence. Because what the law does is it details sins. Next, we see in verse 8 that indwelling sin, that entity that we talked about last night, rebels against the law. You remember? There is that something inside of us that urges us, go ahead and cave into that temptation, okay? That is indwelling sin, sin which dwells in us. That's that old master that we got severed from in salvation, but he hangs around on the soul body level, and so that old, so the old man is gone, he's now the new man, but the old master, the sin master, indwelling sin, he's still there. So verse 8, but indwelling sin, taking occasion or opportunity by the commandment, God's commandment wrought or aroused, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for without the law, indwelling sin was dead. Now, again, it's sin in the singular referring to the sin master, not sins as in actions. But it's indwelling sin that when we yield to that old master produces sins. Not the same as sins, but the reason or influence toward our committing sins. And the truth of the matter is that sin master that still resides in our soul body level, this side of heaven, is inherently rebellious against God's law. And so the law without the spirit, it says there in verse 8, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment. You see, the law without the spirit, it arouses indwelling sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 
confirms by saying the strength of sin is the law. And so this sin entity inside of us is always rebelling against the law. What happens when you tell a little child, don't touch that? <laughs> Immediately, they're going to test it. That's what they want to do. I remember when I was in high school, we had uh, an art class <laughs> uh, that I was in, and I did an oil painting. People did different kinds of art, whatever. I did an oil painting, the only oil painting I've ever done. It was on pansies because they're flat flowers. That was easier to paint <laughs> uh, than a rose or something, and uh, so on. But at any rate, I, uh, I had my painting, and, and by the, the day it was all due, the, the, the paint hadn't dried. I didn't realize that oil paints take a long time to dry, but I still brought my little painting. You know, I was so proud of it and so on to school. Well, there's, you know, another kid in the class, and, uh, uh, and when he found out, that it was still wet. I said, his name was Paul. I said, Paul, don't touch it. I said, well, I should have never said that. Because <laughs> as soon as I said, don't touch it, what do you think he did? <laughs> Boom, <laughs> there's that fat finger right <laughs> in, uh, in the oil paint. And uh, oh, man, now I had to fix it. But see, that's, that's what indwelling sin does. Shouldn't have said fat finger, sorry. But uh, uh, that, <laughs> that is what indwelling sin, it just wants to rebel. I have some friends, and uh, they had a rule in their home for their little kids at Christmas time. They were allowed to touch the ornaments. They were not allowed to take the ornament off the tree. So they just moved the line. Guess what? <laughs> That's what the kids uh, decided to do. So the mother's coming into the living room, and one of the little boys had taken an ornament off the tree. And as she comes into the living room, she sees him putting it back on, and she hears him say, my sin will find me out. <laughs> But all of us have this sin master, this indwelling sin, this something in us that urges toward breaking God's law. That's verse 8. Let's go to the number 3 here on page 22. Although salvation freed us from the law, indwelling sin still rebels against the law. Verses 9, 10, 11. There's some difficult phrases in this. I'm going to give you my understanding of it. If you understand it differently, that's fine. But uh, he uh, says here, for I was alive without the law once. I believe that's referring to uh, when he first got saved. But when the commandment came and dwelling sin was still around and he thus revived and I died because he yielded to that part of him that is totally separated uh, from the God who is life and thus that's death. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For indwelling sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. So to sum that up simply, by yielding to the old master of indwelling sin, we are yielding to joining that part of us that we got severed from. We're raised with Christ the new man. We're joined to Jesus. And when we yield to that part of us, that's the part of us that's totally separated from God who is life. And thus it's referred to as death. But at the same time, number four, the law is holy and good. Verses 12 and 13, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, that's the wrong conclusion. But here's what really happened. In dwelling sin, that it might appear sinful, working death in me by that which is good, the law, that indwelling sin by the commandment might become exceeding 
sinful. See, indwelling sin uses what is good, the law, to condemn us. It brings the death. But God uses the law, according to Galatians 3, to be like a schoolmaster or a tutor to bring sinners to Christ. The very fact that the law does not remove sin but reveals sin, it shows us, hey, you're trying to get to heaven. Heaven's perfect, and the law is showing us how imperfect we are, and thus it's a tutor to point us, you need a Savior. You need Jesus. And so God uses the law for that purpose, whereas the enemy uses it to condemn us. But this is why the inspired text over in 2 Corinthians 3 says the letter referring to the letter of the law, without the Spirit, kills. Because the next verse in Romans, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 3 says it is a ministry of death. Now that's an odd phrase, don't you think? Hey, what's your ministry? Well, I have the ministry of death. <laughs> Every church has a few, <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually referring to the law because the law condemns. Well, some people take on that mode, you know. They condemn everybody. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the point is the law is referred to there as a ministry of death. It's referred to as a ministry of condemnation because that's what it does. It details sin. We've been seeing that over and over again. So if you look to the law for leadership, all you're going to do is get condemned. And this is why so many Christians just walk around with their head down feeling like they can't measure up. Because they on their own without the Spirit can't. And so it's the wrong leader. And what we have to see is, wait a second. In Galatians 3, after it says that the law, God's holy law, is that tutor to point us to Jesus. It shows us we can't, we can't do right on our own. We need a Savior. We need Christ. And when you put your faith in Jesus, he saves you. And the very next verse is often overlooked. It's Galatians 3.25. It says, when faith has come, we're no longer under that tutor. The law is not the leader for the believer in Jesus. And you keep reading in Galatians in chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, the Holy Spirit moves into you. There's your new leader. And so, as we see at the bottom of the page, on page 22, the law leads sinners to Christ, or points sinners to Christ, but the Spirit leads saints in Christ. Now, friends, it's telling us, look, the law should not be the leader. The Holy Spirit should. Guidelines are wonderful, but you need a guide. That has to be a person. And so not only is the law not the right enabler, it's not the right leader, the Holy Spirit is both. Now, we'll see the balance of this here in a moment. In chapter 6, verse 14, we saw that when you yield to the provision that you have, that's when sin doesn't dominate you because in those moments, you're not placing yourself under the law where you have no power, you're placing yourself under the Spirit, you're placing yourself under grace where there is power. Galatians 5.18 puts it this way, but if you be led of the Spirit, right leader, you're yielding to the right leader, you're not under the law. That is what it says. And all that simply means is what we have been saying, you cannot be under, that's your key word, two leaders at the same time. You place yourself under the law, then that's your leader. You place yourself under the Spirit, then he is your leader. And so the point is, you can't be under two leaders at the same time. You see, either... You're yielding to the Spirit where you access grace or 
you are focusing on the law and you're left with your own works, the self-dependent efforts. You're either under one or the other. So if you're under the leadership of the Spirit, that's why it says you're not under the law. That's why we need to focus on the Spirit. Now, preachers have a hard time with this because especially back, as I described historically, when we walked away from the Spirit, that's not how it was earlier in the 19, uh, 20th century by any means, but in the 1970s when that began to happen and the overreaction began to take place, uh, then uh, we didn't know what to do with this. And you know, they come to these passages, all of us preachers, you know, we look at passages and it says you're not under the law, and so you, hear, you heard things like this. Well, you're not under the law. <laughs> that is what it says, but you really are. <laughs> in other words, they didn't know what to do because if you leave the Holy Spirit out of it, everybody's going to go live like the devil. And so they were afraid. We've got to corral everybody in because without the Holy Spirit, you don't have anything else to trust. And this is where it went. And, and so they'd go to the Ten Commandments and they'd preach that. Well, you know, it is the Bible, but you leave the Holy Spirit out, then people are going to be frustrated. But they didn't know what to do with the Sabbath, so that one got chucked. And it was replaced with tithing <laughs> uh, or, uh, you know, some aspect of uh, lifestyle like dress or music or whatever. Whatever somebody's beef was, that's what they would replace it with and so on. But, you know, Galatians 3.10 tells us, look, if you're going to go the law route, you've got to do it all. It's Galatians 3.10. If you're going to go the law route, I'm paraphrasing, you've got to obey it all. Now you're really messed up. What are you going to do about the mixture laws back in Leviticus? <laughs> and so people are scratching their heads. On the other hand... What we're saying, what the scripture is saying, that when you're led of the Spirit and not under the law, it's not saying it's a free-for-all to do what you want. It's the opportunity to access the Holy Spirit and do what he wants by his power. And when you yield to the Spirit, when you walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, then the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is manifested, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, and that is expressed as joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness and faith, meekness and temperance all at the same time. But the bottom line is when you're walking in the Spirit, you've accessed the fruit of the Spirit. He starts imparting to you uh, that fruit of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit is love. And Galatians 5.14, same context, says love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. Ah, so when it says you're not under the law, it's not saying kick the law to the curb. It's just saying he's not the power source. The law is not the leader. The Spirit is. And when you yield to the Spirit, the fruit of Jesus is manifest. There's love, and love fulfills the law. Did you know that the Holy Spirit will never lead you to violate God's law the way God intended it? Sometimes we interpret the law the way we intended. Uh, but the Holy Spirit will never lead us opposite what God intends. So in other words... This is not a free-for-all to do what you want, to live in sin. No, that's the misuse. That's the wrong conclusion that Paul keeps confronting. But it does help you live right. But it takes you from the prison of don'ts to the freedom of won'ts. A couple of weeks ago, we were in San Francisco. My wife and I visited Alcatraz. <laughs> what an amazing prison. And if you've studied that or any of the history behind it, the whole thing is amazing. But man, that's, that was, you know, in its day, a high security prison out there on that island and uh, so forth. And that iron and that cement. So we, you know, we went and toured through the whole thing and whatever. You see, you can put a criminal, because of all of his acts of crime, behind bars 
And while he's behind bars, you keep him from his acts of crime. But you haven't changed his heart. But you take a man who has a changed heart, he doesn't have to have the prison bars anymore, and he doesn't commit the acts of crime. See, that's what I mean. Instead of the prison of don'ts, it's the freedom of won'ts because you're accessing Jesus. When we came to the church in Chicago that my dad pastored in 1966, uh, uh, I was just four, but I remember this man. His name was George Mensick. He had formerly been a uh, member of Al Capone's gang. By the way, Capone spent some time at Alcatraz. But uh, at any rate, uh, uh, George Mensick was his name. And he did what gangsters did. I won't detail all that, but it wasn't good. Uh, in those days, they didn't just kill anybody. It was always members of the other gang, but that doesn't justify the killing. But uh, at any rate, it was selective. But the point is, uh, he did what gangsters did. Well, then his wife got saved, then his daughter got saved, and it's quite a story Then he got saved. And uh, he went to the leaders in the gang and said, you've got to change my duties. You know, the, the, murder's, the murder's not going to work anymore. <laughs> I'm saved now, you know, and, uh, uh, and so on. Well, he soon figured out there wasn't anything he could do in the gang. And so he left the gang and they let him. He was so changed, so transformed, they let him without lynching him. He got a job at first sweeping streets in Chicago. The cronies would roll up in the black limousines and they'd roll down the window, pull out those wads of $100 bills. And uh, they'd wave him in his face and say, anytime you want to come back, George, you're welcome. He'd wave him on. And uh, some sins he got uh, victory over immediately. Uh, some sins took a while. Some habits took him two years to get off of heroin. Uh, but he continued to grow in the Lord. He was attending uh, uh, the church. This, this all happened before we got there. He was, this was later when we knew him. Uh, but uh, he continued to grow in the Lord. Well, then he got uh, burden to witness, to preach, and his burden was to preach to criminals because of his former life of crime, and he wanted to preach in the jails. Now, how is a guy like George Mensick, who's got a police record in Capone's gang, going to be allowed into the jails of Chicago or any jail in the United States? The Chicago Police Department was so overwhelmed by the transformation in this man's life, they threw away his record and he preached in Cook County Jail, DuPage County Jail, all of these jails in the Midwest, and led hundreds of people to Christ. Many men later became preachers that he led to Christ behind bars. Now, friends, that's what happen when you, happens when you get God in the equation. You can keep a criminal from acts of crimes by putting them on Alcatraz, unless they escape like the one guy. <laughs> that messes up the illustration. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you get the point. But you get the changed heart, like a George Mensick, and he's free from the acts of crime without being behind bars. He was a I knew this man. You talk about a loving man. The only thing, the only way you'd know he was formerly a gangster is he still sounded like one. You skies. <laughs> and uh, he did love to carry wads of $100 bills in his pockets. He did love that. <laughs> but other than that, you would not have known. Well, let's get back to what we're dealing with here. You see, top of the next page, second bullet, although the law has no power to enable you to obey, <clears throat> it does expose the nothing good reality of the flesh and can bring you to humility in the sense of, I can't do this. 
See, that's what lost people have to realize. I can't save myself, and so they need their eyes pointed to Jesus to save them. Okay, save people. It can bring them to the humility of, I just can't do this. But often, many of them stop right there, and they tank in despair. Had one guy tell me, he said, I had this addiction. He said, I just couldn't seem to kick it. And uh, he said, finally, you know, I just tanked. Now, he's responsible for that. But uh, then, 10 years later, God opened his eyes to the truth that we're talking about in these three chapters. And God changed him. And he was in the church growing in the Lord uh, when uh, uh, he told me that story. You see, you got to move from I can't to Jesus can. And therefore, I yield to him. I take him. I trust him. I remember I was preaching at a leadership camp. It was upperclassmen, uh, teenagers, and sharp kids, and talented, and whatever is a leadership camp, and so on. And uh, I remember at the end of the week, I had, I had preached on uh, the power of the Spirit, and the access of faith, and, and the Spirit of God enabling you, and so on. And there was this girl. She said, you know, I go to camp every year. She said, I love it. I love it. She said, I always, uh, I always make decisions. But she was real honest. She said, but <laughs> it's impossible. And then she smiled. And she sighed and she said, but now I get it. You see, it's only possible when you get to the spirit. Otherwise, the flesh, it just doesn't cut it because the law kills. And that's what we see as the main point in this first section of uh, Romans 7. The law without the spirit kills. But that brings us to the second part of this, the second discovery. The flesh fails. Verse 14 to the end. See, the law focus, and by the way, the word law occurs six times, and that uh, verse 7 down to verse 13, the word commandment occurs six times, so 12 times you have law, 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 commandment, command, whatever words you want to use there, uh, that's what you have. But here's the danger, whatever you focus on is what you depend on. So Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, right focus, the author of faith, right dependence. Looking unto law, wrong focus, even though the law is good, it has no power, and so now you're depending on something that has no power to help you. And that's when we default back to flesh. As we're going to see at this part in the passage. And this is why it happens. So, verse 14, we're going to see that although the law is spiritual, without spirit dependence, you default to flesh dependence, which often leads to flesh indulgence. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual... It's of God, it's holy, but I'm carnal, that's fleshly, sold under sin. I remember my dad preaching against carnal Christians, and I thought, why is he against carnal? Because I, I didn't hear it as carnal, I heard it as carnal. <laughs> and I remember as a five-year-old and six-year-old thinking, man, why is dad, man, what's, he, what's he worked up about carnal? I mean, I really like carnal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so not carnal, but carnal. The word carnal means fleshly. Okay, so we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, Paul says, sold under sin. In other words, he's saying, when I attempt to obey the law without the spirit, because law dependence, there's no power, you, revolt, you revert to flesh dependence, and flesh dependence uncorrected always leads to flesh indulgence. Even in the pristine settings where everybody is forced into a good-looking box, they all look sharp, they all look good, when you leave the Holy Spirit out, there is corruption 
in those closets. And I have seen settings where, man, everybody looks like, you know, look, the whole church looks like Anna Green Gables. I mean, you know, this is pretty amazing <laughs> setting. But then the kids became teenagers and were eloping and run away, and we found out what was really going on. See, flesh dependence, uncorrected, leads to flesh indulgence. And thus the tragedies that take place, even in settings that look good, because when you're law-focused, you look good. It's the form of godliness, which means there is a form. I'm not knocking that, but it's denying the power thereof. That's the problem. What we need is the form energized by the power thereof. Now, on your uh, page here, there's a side note about whether or not Paul's speaking as a saved man or not. I'm not going to take time to deal with that. I believe he is. Let me just remind us of this. According to the book of Galatians, there are 17 years that go by between Paul's conversion and the first missionary journey. When we read the book of Acts, we think he gets saved, and, you know, within just you know, a couple of months or a year or two, you know, he's on the road on, on the first missionary journey. No, 17 years go by. That's when he learned this. Remember, he was all about the law. He was trained under Gamaliel. He knew the law better than anybody, way better than the rest of the disciples. And, wow, when Jesus saved him, this is great. And he wanted to do what's right. And so his focus was outcome because that's what we find out. He's giving his own testimony uh, in, these, uh, in these verses. Well, let's keep going. At the bottom of page 23, self-reliance leads to the frustration and failure. Let's pick it up uh, uh, there at the top of the next page, uh, verse uh, 15 and following. For that which I do, I allow not. In other words, I'm not supposed to do it. For what I would, in other words, what I would do, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, in other words, would not do, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. There is indwelling sin. For I know that me, that is in my flesh, literally the flesh of me, dwelleth no good thing. Apart from my provision, there dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. It's escaping me. I don't get it. It's evading me. The good that I would, I do not. And the evil which I would not, that I do. Let me ask you, can you relate to that? Wow. You know, when I remember hearing this passage preached when I was much younger, I thought, man, that's me to a T. <laughs> Oh, the evil that I would not, that I do. And I mean, you know, uh, I, I loved uh, uh, New Year's Day because that's a new slate, you know, and I make these resolutions, and some of them are busted by sundown. <laughs> that's what this passage is saying. The very evil things I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. All the stuff I do want to do, I just somehow don't do it. And in this portion of the text, the personal pronoun I occurs 25 times. The Holy Spirit's completely left out. So here it is. The first part of the passage that we started with is law, 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 law. There's no power there, so the default is I, 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 I can't do it. Amen. That's what's going on. That's what Paul had to learn himself. You see, the I here reveals the sheer danger, uh, the danger of sheer willpower that leaves out the Holy Spirit. See, it's soul dependence instead of God dependence. It's what some call struggle theology. 
In other words, if you just fail, if you fail, well, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and try harder. I remember hearing sermons like, sermons like that in the late 1970s and early 1980s. See, that's when we were coming off the overreaction to ignoring the Holy Spirit. Just try harder. Man, we go to youth conferences. Man, just pull yourself up. Man, it would appeal to our flesh. Yeah, just pull ourselves up. Okay, yeah, now I'm going to do it this time. That didn't last very long. Struggle theology. Now, don't misunderstand me. Obviously, there are trials in life that are struggles. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the struggle of trying to live the Christian life without the Christian life himself. <laughs> See, the Christian life is a person. His name is Jesus. And no one can live the Christian life but him. <laughs> but when you got saved, the Christian life himself moved in to live his life, not yours. And friends, when we access him, that's when you access the Christian life. But apart from that, this isn't working. And you have this, verse 18, this painful conclusion, this humbling confession. I know that in me, that is in the flesh of me, and the part of me of that uh, is not the provision. Dwells no good thing. Nothing good, nothing good. Although the provision of the Holy Spirit resides in our regenerated spirit, when we depend on our own strength, our flesh, this ignores that provision. And of course, the flesh cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. When you ignore the Spirit, there's no how to perform. That's why he says, you know, you know, without the Spirit, you know, it's just me and it's not working. The evil things I, I don't want to do, I do, and, and the opposite and so on. I want to do what's right, but how to perform. See, when you leave out the Spirit, there's no how. Because the flesh can't do it. And that's often where people are just frustrated, and some of them just throw their hands up in there and say, oh, forget it. I've had many people tell me that over the years. So verse 20, we learn that yielding to our flesh allows for an identity, uh, identity theft. Now, this is, this is an amazing truth here in verse 20. It says, now, if I do that, I would not. In other words, what I don't want to do. It is no more I that do it. But sin that dwelleth in me. Oh. Is this a cop-out or is this precise theology? Paul says, when I sin, it's not I. Have you ever had the wonderful discovery of not I but sin? You say, well, how can he say that? Remember Romans 6. When you got placed into Jesus, you got baptized into his death. And when he therefore died unto sin and you're placed into him, that's when you die unto sin. That's when your core, that old man, your spirit gets severed. You die too. You're separated from indwelling sin. Raised with Christ the new man, that's where the Holy Spirit moves in. Now, when we ignore the Holy Spirit and yield to that old sin master who's not our master, we're responsible for that. But it's not us. Because the real us is God's seed, God's nature in us, which according to 1 John 3, 9, it says over there, can't sin. But when we ignore it, then yeah, we sin. But that part of us is God's nature. Do you get it? The real you. He says, it's not I, but sin. In other words, he knew that the real him is connected to Jesus. But he saw that he could, it's not robotic, he could ignore that provision, so he's responsible but the fact is, it wasn't him. Now, 
as we say there in the second bullet, you're responsible for yielding to indwelling sin, but that's not the real you. It's an identity theft. Now, our world today is very concerned about identity theft. It's happening more and more. I read the story about a lady named Stacy Nesby. She was pulled over in California for speeding, and so when they got her driver's license and checked her name and stuff, uh, she was immediately arrested and jailed for three days on mistaken identity. What had happened was there was a judge that had issued a warrant for Stacy Nesby's arrest after another woman had been arrested for cocaine possession and then gave Stacy Nesby's name as if it was hers. <laughs> and they didn't check it out. And then she skipped her court date. And so that's this, you know, her name then was in the system, and so that's why she was arrested. The surprising part of this is this kept happening. And the police would finally figure it out and say, we'll get this corrected. But this dear lady, the real Stacy, <laughs> was arrested, jailed, or detained seven times by five police departments for the same mistake. And she had to sue the city of San Francisco. Now, that's a good thing. <laughs> And finally, a judge required that the warrant be corrected, and after four years of a nightmare, it was finally taken care of. Mistaken identity. Now, friends, if you're a child of God, his nature is in you. You're a child of God. And when we yield to that master who's not our master, it's not I but sin. We're responsible, but it is a mistaken identity. Because when we go down the sin road, the works of the flesh are manifest, and unsaved flesh and saved flesh looks exactly alike. Fornication looks like fornication. Envy looks like envy. And that's when the waters get muddied. It's a mistaken identity. And so he goes on here. This warring laws bring bondage. There's that law of sin. I find in the law that when I do good, evil is present with me. That's the old sin master. There's the law of God. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. See, that has to be a saved man. You can't do that if you're not saved. And then there's the law of flesh dependence that wars against the law of reason and brings you into captivity to the law of sin. He says, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of indwelling sin, which is in my members. So even the flesh of regenerated people, when you ignore the spirit, fails. The law kills, the flesh fails. And so verse 24. This bondage, all of this backwardism, leads to the despair of self-reliance and a heart cry for deliverance. Oh, wretched man that I am. See, there it is. Law focus, law focus. You'd think that that would be good, and that's what happened to Paul. He thought it would be good too, but it's, and there's no power there, and now you're depending on that which has no power, and so the vacuum is filled with flesh dependence, and so it's law, 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 law. I, I, I can't do it. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's the conclusion he comes to. Then he says, who? shall deliver me. He's not talking about forgiveness and pardon in the sense of salvation. He says, deliver as a saved person. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Did you notice he says who? He had tried all the what's. He really had. His own strength. We can do the same thing. Our strength. Our strength with a bunch of guardrails. But you leave the person out <laughs> You're still in trouble because life takes you outside the guardrails. 
uh, you know, trying to get propped up by this, that, and the other. You leave out the Holy Spirit, it doesn't work. So, here's this realization. It's a crisis. All self-hope is finally gone. And that's what we must come to. And then he gives the answer. <laughs> and this is the lead into tomorrow night. The answer comes through taking the provision of the indwelling Christ and thanking him. When somebody gives you a gift and you take it, if you're courteous, what do you say? Thank you. So here it is. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is your opening into Romans 8. But now he wraps up the Romans 7 by saying, So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. Law, wrong leader, and therefore with the flesh, the law of sin. Because that leaves out the spirit. But he's opening the door of what he's going to bring out. You already possess the provision. His name is Jesus. He's in you. Take him. And all of us cross work and start depending on the spirit. Move from Calvary to Pentecost. Otherwise, that wrong approach, that law approach will lead to defeat. And that self-reliance will lead to frustration. Only the Holy Spirit can bring deliverance. The flesh cannot do right. So, in conclusion, those takeaways, the source of life is Jesus and the goal is Jesus. In my own journey, I got saved at 6, called to preach at 15, preached my first sermon at 16 and so on. Uh, and, you know, I was all about it. I was, uh, you know, give me the list. I'm going to be the farthest to the right. That was a humble motive. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I was all about it. And I was sincere, you know, whatever. Uh, but I didn't know about this Holy Spirit. And uh, in 1992, 93, I told you that story about the pink carpet and all that. You know, that's when uh, some of those truths that I was studying came together. And uh, I began to realize the power of the Spirit. Now, that was awesome. And I, and some of my earlier message uh, uh, messages on the power of the Spirit uh, uh, were in the in the 1990s. So I had awakened to the right source of power, Jesus by His Spirit, but I still had the wrong goal. Now, when it's wrong source and wrong goal, that's full blown. When it's right power, wrong goal, that's hybrid. That's just where I was. And by the way, victory was evading me. It wasn't until God opened my eyes to the right goal that my wife began to say, you know, something's changing here. That was 10 years later. 10 years. I started what's called the Holiness Conference in 1995. I started it as a hybrid because that's where I was. <laughs> now, in 1999, God opened my eyes. That journey I told you with that book called The Wind of the Spirit. That's when the person came in view. Oh, wow. And that's when we shifted the emphasis at the conference in the year 2000. We should have changed the name to Holy Spirit or something like that because uh, it got shifted to the person. And I'm going to tell you, God moved in those early years of the 2000s. Uh, that was glorious moments. The presence of God felt in an auditorium where the presence of God was so real. People were on their faces, literally toe to head, on the ground. God's conviction so pr uh, powerful uh, there. Seven, eight hundred people. I remember uh, college kids confessing sins and mothers going bananas as they heard their own son confess the sin of love. And the mother going, ah! God on the move, I'm telling you, man. God cleaned house. It's powerful. It's wonderful. But see, 
we got to get both. It's not just the right power and wrong goal because then you don't access the power you're talking about. But when you get the right goal, you get Jesus into this as the leader and the power source, that's when it gets exciting. Because it's not our job to obey the law. We can't. It's Christ's job. He can and he does. Have you awakened? Are you awakening, if need be, to that wrong approach? And the impossibility when you focus on law that kills, end up with flesh.